Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male slave, or his female slave, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. We finally have come to the Tenth Commandment. And on the surface, this last commandment, it, it, it seems kind of like an afterthought, maybe like a fill-in. It's kind of on the surface, it seems like God had hit all the major topics. You know, murder, sexual sin, lying, stealing, being obedient. It's almost like he had nine commands, but he really wanted to have a round number. He wanted to round that number out. And so he threw in coveting. Well, he was thinking like, well, nine won't do. I need to end with an even number, and I don't want to drop any of the commands I've already given, so... I know, I'll throw in coveting and bam, we got Ten Commandments, even number, good with that. It may seem to be that way, but nothing can be further from the truth. Because what God has done in giving us the commandments can be compared with how he chose to end the book of Revelation in proclaiming that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Ten Commandments begin with God. That's the Alpha. It's used, that word Alpha there is used, not just to mean the leader, the top dog in that kind of a sense. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. And in the Revelation context, it's used to speak of the transcendence of God, meaning that he was before time began. And this truth parallels Isaiah 44, 6, which says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. The Ten Commandments begin with the same words, speaking of who he is, the only God who is unlike anything that he has ever created, which is why we are not to make any image of him, molten or mental, to represent him. God is spirit. And all who are to worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. John 4.24 But God did step down into humanity as a human. He did live a perfect sinless life. And he did suffer under sinful men that he could become the perfect sinless atoning sacrifice for the elect of God. Those who he had predestined. Those whom he called. And those who he called he justified, and those who he justified, he glorified, Romans 8, 28. And we, the called, the justified, the predestined, we are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are in Christ, and we are, in fact, the visible body, the physical manifestation of God here on this planet, and we are his representatives to this hostile pagan world that hates their creator and we're to represent him rightly we are not to take the great gift of God that gift of being his children in vain this is the essence of the prohibition against taking his name in vain because his name is his nature it is who and what he is as told to us in Exodus 3:14. and then this covenant making 
covenant-keeping God begins to tell us what it looks like to represent him rightly, to not take his name in vain. We won't be disobedient. Foremost to him and then to the authorities that he's placed over us, beginning with our parents. Do you learn to obey your parents in submitting to them? Submitting to God will come much more natural. And parents, teach your children to obey, not just comply. Because when you do that, you are preparing them to obey God as they obey you. And we are to value human life because it's created in the image of God. And we are to obey God and enjoy the gift of sex, but only in the covenant of marriage. And we are to value the gifts that he has given us, but always value him above all the things that he has given us. And for this reason, we are not to steal from him or from other humans. And we are to value the holiness of God, the essence of his name, which is truth. And for this reason, we are not to lie. Brings us to the 10th command. And he ends the commands with himself once again the Omega. But for us to be able to understand how he does this, how I'm actually seeing this in this covenant, or in this command, not the covenant, we must first understand what that word covet means. So what does covet mean? Covet means to desire, to yearn for something. Coveting is the extreme desire to have something. And coveting is wrong, or so we think. And this gets to the alpha, or I'm sorry, to the omega part of that alpha and omega analogy that I'm proposing. The commandments of God for his people, for his covenant people, were never meant to be seen as a to-do list. We can't do them. They were never meant to be the standard bearer in which we compare our lives with each other so that we can determine who the better person is, who the better Christian is. And unfortunately, this is what they have become more often than not in the evangelical world. If they're seen as binding at all, that's how they're used. And how often, though, how often have you actually thought or, or heard or said, that, that person's a better Christian than me? Or, man, I'm just glad I'm not them because I'm a much better person than they are. And the thing that you use, that you base your judgment on, are the last six commands of God. As we compare ourselves with each other. But as we've studied the commands given us by God, you can't help but see how the list begins magnifying God. That's a whole part of chapter verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 of Exodus 20. Making much of him. And then it starts drilling down. The last six commands continually go deeper and deeper in us, moving from our actions to our thoughts until you get to this last command, which is the bedrock of your heart, of your desires. This is that omega part that we're supposed to see God once again if we are of the elect. 
to magnify, magnify God once again as we drill down to the bedrock of who we, his covenant people, are. It's here that we're supposed to find that we are found in him. When we come to this last command, we are meant to find God high and lifted up once again. Let me explain that. To be saved, to be a Christian, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's Romans 10, 9. But what does it mean to be saved? It means God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It means that we are in Christ. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, Romans 12.5. It means that we were once dead in our trespasses and sin, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. And because we've been saved, because we are in Christ, it also means that we are his children. And if we are his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, Romans 8:17. And as children of God, found in Christ Jesus, our lives are to be different. We are to be ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us that we would be telling people, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5.20. And, you are a chosen people. You are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. First Peter Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It means that because we are in Christ, because we are his body, that we can live different because of this. Because of this. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That wasn't a typo. And I just wanted you guys to understand that. When, when God wrote this, we have the mind. If we are in Christ, we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. You don't believe me, open your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. Look and see if it's in your Bible just the same way. We have the mind of Christ. In fact, because we are in Christ, because we are saved, we are commanded to live different. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And finally, 
To be saved means to be the bride of Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, I just, how, how much problems in marriages today, especially within the Christian community, is because of this? Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives also submit in everything to their husbands? Maybe if we, church, we husbands, were to submit the way we're supposed to, maybe our wives would learn from us. Ephesians 22 through 24. But before I move on, I have to ask you, is this you? Do you see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior? Can you, when you hear the Ten Commandments, see yourself in the mirror of the perfect standard of God and see that you have fallen short, that you've broken the law of God, that you have sinned against a holy God, and for this reason you must be punished? that you are condemned and you will be sent to hell for all eternity. And then you hear about Jesus. You read about him. You hear his offer to come to him. And your heart leaps for joy because he loves you. So you run to him. You confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you are saved. Is this you? Do you know that you are a sinner in need of a Savior? Can you see Jesus as that Savior? Then have you followed your Savior in obedience? Confess with your mouth the thing that you already know in your heart. Jesus is Lord, and you will, you are saved. And then follow him in baptism and begin to walk with him in the newness of life. So you're asking, what does all this have to do with the omega part of the alpha and the omega? How are we supposed to find God magnified here in the command not to covet? Because magnified means to explode, to make much of. But it also means to drill down, to look deeply into. And this is what this last command does. It drills down into the very center of our hearts, into the very heart of God. Because we are supposed to. In fact, we are commanded by God to covet. To be like Jesus and covet. Yeah, you heard me right. We are to emulate God and to covet. Luke 22, verses 14 through 16. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table with the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until, the kingdom in, until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Don't get offended that I've, I've taken his statement concerning earnestly desiring and then compared that to coveting. Remember what that definition of coveting was? Do you remember that? It was to earnestly desire. Oh, and, and Paul, he coveted as well. We're told in Philippians 3 of something that he coveted. 
He said, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of, know of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Oh, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing that I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward, so what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus, 714. And this wasn't the only thing that he admitted coveting to in that letter to the church in Philippi. In chapter 1, he says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that, you, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Oh, and God through Paul also encouraged the Corinthian saints to covet as well. The better, the spiritual gifts. He said there, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. And God, through Paul, would once again admonish this, the, the saints in Corinth to covet. 1 Corinthians 14, 39. Therefore, my brethren, earnestly desire to prophecy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Can't you see that just that the seventh command does not forbid sex, and the eighth command does not forbid ownership of personal property, and the ninth command does not forbid talking, the tenth command does not forbid coveting either. The issue isn't coveting. The issue is our heart. And saints, at the heart of every issue, there's always an issue of the heart. And God used Paul to illustrate this truth to us. On another occasion, Paul said of the law in Romans 7, 7 and through 10, what then shall we say was the law is, uh, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not been for the law, I would not have known my sin, for I would have not known what it was to covet if the law had, had not said, you shall not covet. Obviously, he's talking about the Ten Commandments here. And which one of those commandments is the one that he used to speak about himself? It wasn't adultery or idol worship or hatred of people, or murdering, even though he did, in fact, hate people. We, we're told that in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any that belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verses 8 and 9 of Romans 7, though. He goes on, he says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin was dead. 
I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came, alive, and I died. What he's saying is he personalized his sin against God through coveting. But listen to what he says about this 10th commandment in verse 10. He says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Do you get that? We need to hang on to this verse because we're going to circle back around to it. But now, just understand that once saved, once alive in Christ, Paul could see that the commandments of God promised life. They held life. They were life. But outside of Christ, prior to Christ, they were death. Verses 11 and 12 of Romans 7. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. If the law is life, and since it is life, and since coveting, desiring things is not inherently bad, what exactly then does the tenth command forbid? It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. So the interesting thing about coveting is the person that's doing it, more often than not, is blind to it. They don't see or even know their own hearts. Poor people can and often love money and covet it more than those that have lots of it. And you may be thinking, well, that's just kind of natural. I mean, if you're poor, you want to have a better and easier life. And once you get the better, easier life, you're no longer lacking. And therefore, you don't covet better, easier stuff. But that's not the case. The issue is never about money or the size of your house. The issue is the state of your heart. There's a very good instance given us in the Bible of a very rich and powerful man who coveted his neighbor's house. 1 Kings 21, 1-4. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Hey, give me your vineyard that I may have a vegetable garden because it's near my house and I'll give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value and money. But Naboth said to Ahab, Yahweh forbid that I should give you my inheritance of my father's. And Ahab went to his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite said, because he said to him, I won't give you the inheritances of my father's. And he lay down on his bed, and he turned his face to the wall, and he would not eat. Most of us know how this story played out. Because Ahab had this fine wife named Jezebel who loved him very much and was very virtuous. So she conspired against Naboth, paid men to falsely accuse him of blasphemy. He was stoned to death, and Ahab got what he covered, coveted. The issue was never a vegetable garden. The heart of the issue was always the issue of his heart. The next thing we're told that we're not to covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Once again, we think that those that don't have a wife, oh, it's them. They're the ones that covet wives, another man's wife. But more often than not, that's not the case. Again, there's another account of another king of Israel who had many wives who had coveted his neighbor's wife. Second Samuel 1.17. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him. 
and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. As he was walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Oh, you know, Uriah the Hittite. What is not specifically said there is that Uriah the Hittite was one of David's good friends. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. And so she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And for all of you who have not physically acted as David has, coveting your neighbor's wife is desiring her. It's lust. Lust is a strong desire for something that God has forbidden. When we covet the spouse of someone else, what we are actually doing, we are emotionally leaving the one that we have coveted with. We may never touch our neighbor's wife, inappropriately but in our hearts we desire that which is not ours we commit adultery by coveting that which has not been given us and jesus equated inward lust with outward adultery matthew 5 28 again at the heart of the issue was an issue of the heart or his male slave or his female slave in our day and age in our culture this would speak to lifestyle ease and comfort you know most of us have to clean our own houses do our own dishes wash your own clothes but you know but there are people that actually have people to do that for them in fact there are people that have people to oversee those people that do this for them the president of the united states is one of them and how wonderful it would be not to be bothered with such mundane things to have servants to do for you Again, the issue isn't whether or not you're doing these things for yourself. Because it's not inherently sinful to have people do things for you. It's to covet those that do this. That is sinful. Or his ox, or his donkey. In our day and age, this would be their ride, their car, or their lawn, or field equipment. Now, I have to admit... There are some fine little tractors out there that I would like to have. I wouldn't mind having because I think, man, they would make my life so much easier. And there are some cars out there that I think would be really nifty to own, like a Tesla. But is noticing, looking at, admiring, possibly even daydreaming about something, is that wrong? Is that coveting? And what is this what the Tenth Commandment is forbidding? Well, let's finish the prohibited list, and then we can answer that question. There, he ends it with this, or anything that is your neighbor's. God ends their prohibition against coveting with this little inclusio, anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when I read this, I had to make sure that I knew what that meant. So I did a word search to find out what that original Hebrew word for anything is and what it meant and what I found out is actually pretty shocking. It means anything. To covet it 
in its most general sense means to desire, to yearn for something, to desire to have something. And as I pointed out at the beginning of this sermon, desiring is not inherently sinful. It's what you desire. It's the heart that is behind the desire that makes it either sinful or not. Coveting the things of God is not sinful. Coveting the things that God has not given to you is. See, there was this occasion that Jesus addressed this issue. He said, there, he, he called the people to him again and said to him, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside of a person by going into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him, since it doesn't enter his heart, but enters his stomach, and then is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Mark 7, 12 through 23. And the list that Jesus gives there is inclusive of all the Ten Commandments. And coveting is included to intensely desire something. But then in 1 Peter, we are admonished to intensely desire something. There we're told, as like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, 1 Peter 2.2. 2. And if you don't understand that word picture, you obviously have never been around a newborn baby when they're hungry. The word there that is used in 1 Peter, to long for, is also translated to crave, to intensely desire. The Greek word means to intensely crave possession of. And God, through Paul, tells us in 1 Corinthians, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And the Greek word there for pursue is the same root word that means persecute. That's the intensity that he desires us to go after love. And as I stated earlier, the command to covet is, or to not covet, is specific. This 10th command is specific, just as the other nine commands are. In each of them, there's a negative aspect to them. God never said that you shall not worship God. He said that you will not worship any other gods. He did not say that I am unknowable, only that we are forbidden from creating an image of him. He didn't say that we couldn't speak his name, that you had better not even utter it, otherwise you're toast. He said not to take it in vain. <clears throat> Excuse me. He commanded that we keep the Sabbath and that we make it holy, not that we never even think of the Sabbath. The sixth command is not against parenting. It's, in, it's given in support of it. The seventh command is not against life. It's against wrongfully taking life. The eighth command is not against owning. It's against taking things that are not yours. The ninth command is not against talking. It's against lying, not esteeming truth. And the tenth command is not against desiring or coveting. It's against coveting, desiring, having a heart that is not satisfied with God. 
To prove my point, let's jump back to Romans 7. You might want to grab your Bible. Romans 7. Because there we're going to find that Paul is making the same argument that I'm making today. Romans 7, beginning in chapter 1. I'm sorry, in verse 1. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known my sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. The Greek word that is used both times in this verse and is rendered to us as covet is our English word. I'm sorry, in our English, that, that word is covet. In the Greek, that word is apithumia. And this is the same word that is used in Luke 22:15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover be with you before I suffer. The same word that is used by Jesus. Every person covets. We are made that way. We are created to desire, which is why we create, why we strive after, why we get up in the morning and work hard, because there's something that we are striving after that we earnestly desire. Coveting is not sinful. Coveting those things that God has not given you is. And you will find this truth throughout the Bible. The comparison between coveting rightly and coveting sinfully. A right heart and a sinful heart. Proverbs 21:26 tells us all day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and doesn't hold back. Proverbs 28:22, A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him. Proverbs 11.4, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Matthew 7.12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's the heart. Ezekiel 33.31, And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they, they say, I'm sorry, they and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Speaking of people within the church. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And then Matthew 6, 21. For where your, heart, or for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Jesus never desired us not to desire treasure. I want you guys to understand that. Jesus never wanted us not to desire treasure. In fact, he admonished us to desire, to covet treasure. Matthew 13, 43-46, he said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant, in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. And again, in the gospel according to Mark, in chapter 4, Jesus gives us the parable of the sower and the soils. And his explanation of the parable there ties in with this 10th command. There, he says, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. You guys know the parable, right? 
the sower, the four soils. The ones on the, on, the long, on the side of the path, they are the ones that when they hear, Satan immediately t- comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones that are sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. It wasn't desires that choked the word. It was desires for other things that did. And this is what Paul was admonishing Timothy about in 1 Timothy 6, where he says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. For he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with great content, or I'm sorry, with contentment is great gain. This is verse four, verse six of 1 Timothy, and it's paramount to understanding the heart behind the 10th commandment. Paul goes on to explain why coveting is good and why coveting those things outside of God is sin. He says, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we should be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 1 Timothy 6. 2 through 10. Did you hear that co- the comparison between righteous coveting and sinful coveting in those verses? The omega of the, command, of the Ten Commandments is the alpha as well. God begin, began the Ten Commandments with, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And there is the reason for the Ten Commandments. There is the summation of them the explanation of the giving of them. If God is not our God, then these Ten Commandments are meaningless. But God is our God. Whether you acknowledge this truth to be truth or not, which is why he is just and the justifier in salvation. He is just in sending all who do not bow the knee in obedience to his lordship to an eternity in hell. And he is the justifier of all who bow the knee now in submission to him as their Lord and Master. And this all ties back in with Romans 7.10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. See, Paul understood the law. And what he understood was that it was life. It was perfect because it was all of God, that, because it speaks of God. And since it speaks of God, it speaks of the glory and holiness of God. He understood that the last of the commands of God circle all the way back around to the first of the commands of God. 
And we find this truth in the New Testament as well. Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Did you, did you see what he just did? Paul takes that 10th command, and he brings it all the way around, back full circle to the second commandment. He takes the omega and ties it back in with the alpha. He understood that the Ten Commands weren't broken up into two tablets, one dealing with God and the other dealing with people. That they were all about our heart towards God. And that once God has given us his heart, that we have the ability. We have the ability for the first time in our lives to covet, to earnestly desire rightly which is why he begins to admonish us to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has another uh, complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which is binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Here it is. The issue, the heart of the issue. Again, it's an issue of the heart. Are you thankful? Are you content with your house, with your apartment, with the life, the house, the car, the God that God has given you? Are you content with God? Content with God? Because if you are not content with any of those things, you are not content with God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him, Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Coveting is not inherently evil. And this is why Paul says that this command promised life. And for the believer, the redeemed in Christ, it is life. It's death for those who covet those things that God has not given them, that are not of him. Saints, you do covet. And this is not inherently wrong or evil. It's what you covet that's evil or wrong. If you covet anything that is outside of God or his will for you, you are an idolater. You have at that moment placed yourself on the throne of God and said to God, I know better than you. And saints, we covet most what we value most and what we believe to be the best. And what we covet most, we will sacrifice to obtain. I have to ask you, what is it that you're willing to sacrifice to obtain? 
What is it that you do sacrifice to obtain? I don't have time to read my Bible in the morning. I got to get up and play video games. I don't have time to get in the Word or to pray. I got to get to work. I don't have time to be with my family. I'm going to go hang out with my friends. I don't have time to be with the covenant body. What you sacrifice for is what you covet. And your life proves what it is. You can say what you want with your mouth. And like I said before, people who covet, more often than not, are blind to those things that they actually covet. They can't see their own heart. They believe they're being lied. They lie to themselves and believe something completely different. How many people have you heard to tell you that I love God? Oh, I love the Lord. Do you go to church? No. Not very often, I, you know. They actually believe that they love the Lord. But their life proves something different. And the world incites us towards sinful covetousness. Credit buying enables us to buy covetously. Buying those things that we don't need and we can't afford. Even though Christ said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. There, there, there is the litmus test of what we should covet. If you are coveting anything, if you are striving after anything that you can't take with you when you are dead, you are coveting wrongly, sinfully. And you can always know where your heart is concerning God by looking at what it is that you desire. What do you long for? What do you long for? A car? A guitar? What are you striving after? Because God does desire you to covet. He, he desires you to strive after, to long for. But he desires us to desire him in this way. Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. 1 Chronicles 6, 11, or 16 and 11. Look to Yahweh and his strength. Seek his face always. First Chronicles 22, 19. Now devote your heart and soul to seeking Yahweh your God. And Hebrews eleven six, Without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who, believed, who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those. You know what the last three words of that verse is? Who earnestly seek him. This is contentment in God. To find him. To find him to be the pearl of great price. 
to find him to be that, pre- that treasure that you're willing to sell all for, to give all for. This is righteous coveting. This is earnestly desiring the Lord. This is where you're willing to say, I'm going to forsake all those things that may be pleasurable in my flesh, but I want Christ. The Ten Commandments begin with God, and they end with him. The Alpha, the Omega. The Alpha, that's, impar- that's apparent, because he's transcendent, omnipotent. He's God. And once you've given your life, once he has made you alive to him, you will see the omega in the same way. You will covet. But the thing that you will covet is God. Saints, can I admonish you? Covet God. Covet the things of God. I can guarantee you No saint at the end of their life had ever wished that they had prayed less, that they had been in the word less, that they had given themselves to the body less. The things that people regret at the end of their lives, those are the wasted time they spent on coveting those things that weren't really of any value to them. And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is coveting God. This is what we should be striving after. This is life. And everything outside of it is death. Again, that 10th commandment does not say, you shall not covet. It tells us what not to covet. Saints, covet that which you have been given. You've been given Christ. Covet that gift. the greatest gift we will ever receive. Let's pray.